thank you for agreeing to sit down with me just now uh, during your stay in Edinburgh. Um, just first of all, would you be willing to introduce yourself for those that may not be familiar with your work? Sure. I'm Steve Hayes, and uh, I do work on acceptance, mindfulness, and values under the rubric of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act, and trying to develop a basic understanding of language and cognition and the challenges that it presents to human beings. I'm known for the development of relational frame theories as a particular approach to that. And then those two things together, forming an approach that actually goes out more broadly into other applied methods called contextual behavioral science, mm -hmm. uh, which has uh, become a force on the worldwide stage for evidence-based therapies of a particular sort, particularly developing them, uh, that is going into not just clinics, but also into social problems and uh, behavioral health care Basically, anywhere the human minds go, we try to be of use. As the, one of the primary authors of the acceptance and commitment therapy approach, I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you a few questions about the use of metaphors in ACT. Sure. First of all, what do you think the introduction of a metaphor might add to a person's experience of trying to make sense of or cope with difficulties in their own life? Well, metaphor is a profound profoundly important part of our language because uh, it's very efficient in quickly expanding knowledge. That's one thing that it does. But the other thing is that uh, simple linear verbal rules uh, tend to be much less uh, complex than metaphors. Mm. Metaphors are more subtle because there's an underlying science of this in the relational frame theory that metaphors involve bringing an entire set of uh, verbal cognitive relations to bear on another set. And so all the nuance and subtlety of, of function and implication and connotation that may exist in one set can show up in another. And there's a kind of, uh, it's almost as if you've experienced something, very much the way telling stories are, which of course are metaphors and similes, mm. the parables, things that kind of almost as if you've experienced something mm -hmm. and you can kind of apply it in a way that fits the situation. So if I just tell you to you know, raise your hand when you hear the bell, it's not telling you very much about anything other than that specific thing and it tends to be repertoire narrowing. Yes, you can get the person to raise your hand. But we know that people that are less sensitive to their experiences, uh, you know, if raising the hand began to be penalized in some way, you might keep raising your hand just because you were told to do it. Mm -hmm. But if I said something like, you know, anxiety is like quicksand, and uh, if you find yourself stuck in it, it's not, you know, you may want to think about uh, whether or not you're going to try to struggle your way out of it. Mm -hmm. There's so many implications and connotations in the original story, or and using that as a metaphor allows you to take things that are not dominant in one network and make them more dominant. Right. Like in, if, in the case of being stuck in a swamp or something, you may have had your Boy Scout training and you kind of know it. You better lay out flat on it or you're going to sink in, increase the surface area, make it less likely that you, uh, you know, get stuck by a process of sinking and suction. Mm -hmm. 
So if someone's yeah. had an experience, uh, then they can maybe transfer the meanings yeah. and the relationships. If they had a direct experience, or in this case, some of this may be acquired by language, but if it's in this more elaborated network of stories and parables, and then you get into a situation like anxiety, and you don't see the similarity, but a quick metaphor might help you see it. And so something that's dominant in one area, mm -hmm. like laying out flat instead of struggling, mm -hmm. you then come over into the new network where, metaphorically, what does laying out flat look like? Mm -hmm. What does not struggling, struggling look like? And it might occur to you that really what you might need to do is turn towards your feelings and body sensations and so forth, which could give you important new ways of moving ahead with anxiety. Yeah. So uh, to answer your question more directly, uh, we use metaphor because it is uh, a less repertoire narrowing, it's an efficient, effective, but less narrowly focused way of verbal influence. We can't afford to learn everything by trial and error, yeah. but we dare not try to live our lives by <coughs> robot-like following out small numbers of kind of tight, linear verbal rules. Mm -hmm. Metaphor gives us a way to negotiate the complexity uh, without uh, being dominated by uh, literal analytic and comparative language. Yeah. So, if you were introducing uh, a metaphor to someone, do you think it makes a difference how personally relevant or personalized it is? Well, yeah, because if you're going to really have an impact, the metaphor has to be apt. And it has to be create a transformation of functions. We know that in the research on metaphors, that metaphors that are linked to perceptual events are more likely to be remembered. Right. Uh, whether or not something is apt has to do with whether or not there's a dominant uh, element of both the target and the vehicle mm -hmm. that's shared, but then that there's something new in the vehicle that's absent the target. But the shared part especially needs to be not just dominant, but immediate and perceptual to be easily remembered mm -hmm. and used. So it has to be appropriate to the context that the person may be struggling with. It has to fit the context their own experience. So if I can't imagine what it's like to be struggling and almost sinking into your death in the quicksand, uh, I'm not going to be as likely to link it to that desperate physical feeling that's involved with overwhelming bouts of anxiety. So you ask the question, does it have to be personalized? I think it has to be relevant to the person. It's, it, if, it can, if it can be personalized in an individual way, that's great. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to use the client's own metaphorical language to do the heavy lifting and act if I can find a way uh, to do it. But it definitely has to be built out in terms of people's experience and their sort of direct sensory and perceptual experience mm -hmm. especially because on that link the transformation is likely to happen you're not going to get it if it's if a metaphor is dry abstract uh, kind of empty mm -hmm. meaning for somebody it's not going to change their behavior often in my work I ask people the question like what was that like for you particularly when discussing really difficult experiences. And when I think about that, that's actually kind of inviting them to generate a simile or a metaphor for the experience that they actually had themselves. 
what do you think is going on when a person's thinking of a response to that kind of a question? Well, I think about more in terms of an RFT perspective, and then I'll try to move it over to, okay. to ACT. But part of what you're doing there is you're, when you're asking, and it's good that you caught it, and you say, what's that like? You're already into metaphor and simile and analogy. Um, this idea of relating relations is so dominant in our language, you can hardly say a paragraph uh, without using new metaphors, and, and you can't say a sentence without using frozen ones. Mm. I mean, so many things that we now think are concrete, uh, you know, like, I'm inclined to go. Yeah, like an inclined plane, like something leaning over and about to topple. I mean, you have to imagine. Uh, take a word like, you know, I want that. Yeah, but in the old Norse, it meant missing. And so you have to imagine a time where even to say, you know, what the reinforcements were, what the mm -hmm. things were, you had to talk about it in terms of what is missing. You couldn't say, I want milk, you'd say, I'm missing milk. Right. But which is very primitive way to say it, but metaphors then allows us to begin to build a verbal network in, in which these more subtle things become concretized mm -hmm. in frozen metaphors. So there's a very small number of words that are not metaphor mm -hmm. in our language, and we're constantly. But back to your point, when you say, what's that like, and you're exploring it, very likely you're trying to get a sense of the perceptual impact of reality of experience, mm -hmm. the richness of it so that you can build out your interventions based on that, touching where the client actually is, and making whatever your talk is, whatever your speech is, relevant to the client. And if you come back to the RT part, if you don't get a transformation of function, you're not going to get a change in mm -hmm. behavior. And on the ACT part, we're trying to put into people's lives some new behavioral functions in a domain. They're not new period, end of story, people know something about acceptance, diffusion, all of these things we're trying to do, they already know them and use them in some domains, but they don't see their relevance to this domain. Yeah. And so you need to get it to transfer over, and knowing what it's like from the inside out. Mm. So it's a bit like Socratic questioning, kind of getting someone to explore the relational frames that they have experience of, and seeing if any of those apply in... Yeah, you want to draw people's time. language networks out from, from them. There's a lot of overlap, and you can make some assumptions, but you can also make errors in people's idiosyncratic histories. And when you do that, if you listen with a second ear to their own metaphorical language, you can find a way forward uh, that you know, would only apply to that client. Let me give you an example. I was working with a socially anxious young person who was a competitive rock climber, world class. And, but extremely anxious. I mean, couldn't go to a public bathroom, didn't like leaving the house, you know, had anxiety attacks and, and social situations. And just kind of listening to her, because of what I was trying to do, it became clear to me I could use her experience in rock climbing. Mm. And so we ended up, I wrote a chapter about it called Climbing Anxiety Mountain, where right. we walked out all of the act moves in in terms of what she did competitively. Mm -hmm. So, for example, she knew that she had to sort of make room for her fear and go for it 100% in order to learn a new move on the mountain. If she went, made a half effort, she's coming off the rock. And uh, if, if, she, if there's a new handhold or a new stretch, a new, new, that it had to be practiced. 
each one had to be 100%, but over time it would become more automatic. Well, that's pretty similar to kind of willingness moves that yeah. we wanted to teach and establish as a way to, you know, take a direction and face the challenges of difficult emotions. So the metaphor of an anxiety mountain mm. gives you values, up is more important than down, gives you a direction. Also allows you to think of, you know, mastering the mountain. It's a matter of defeating it, crushing it, making it go away, but it's a matter of being able to interact in with it in an effective way. Yeah. And then it has to be learned and practiced one step at a time and start with where you are. Mm -hmm. All of those things are profoundly useful in setting up a course of therapy as we can link over, you know, the, the specific diffusion skill or whatever is like a handful. And yeah. This time where we're going to do a little bit of exposure would be like practicing a move. And when we did exposure, which we did, you know, going out to social situations, let's say, we would uh, talk about this in terms of, you know, we're going to be roped in, mm -hmm. you know, I'll be with you, whatever the, or this is a set limited time, it's at the brackets, just like you would if you're practicing move on the mountain, you make sure it's safe, mm -hmm. you're willing to do it. But then within that, you're going to have to try 100%, so that's kind of a concrete example of why you want to explore. Clients have wisdom, and they have knowledge in some domains that they don't see applies yeah. to others. And you can use your theoretical part to help guide you how to find it. You have to use your mindful listening and questioning to find out what's true for that client. Yeah. I recently watched your uh, TEDx talk, um, and uh, you used quite a lot of different metaphors to explain and illustrate a variety of different concepts, from cars to calculators, and I was wondering whether you have one or two like favorite metaphors that you frequently use with people. Well, one of the top, I like top two or top one. <laughs> I like uh, these kind of Christmas tree metaphors. That Anxiety Mountain would be one I want to use with a, that one client, but it, it was a Christmas tree because it, and, and another metaphor. Okay, the meaning that you could hang on that tree many, many different little lights and baubles uh -huh. and. Uh, so, you know, I'll use metaphors to get a narrow thing accomplished, but you know, I want the big ones. If you wanted to name my favorite big ones, my single favorite big, big one is to ask a person to put, to show with their own body them at their worst when dealing with an issue and them at their best. Right. And almost always they'll give you a, a metaphor for being closed and defended mm -hmm. or fighting, fighting or fleeing failing or flopping or defending or closing in. So the physical posture, physical posture. Is, a, is, a, is a metaphor for the emotional state that they find themselves in? No, for the stance with their own emotions. Right. And the stance with their own cognitions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so the actual relationship between themselves and, and the emotion. Yeah. You can see uh, your arms and hands come in, for example, or your fists may clench, your head may go down, your eyes may close. You pull yourself into a fetal position, your knees come up, or you begin to run, or literally punch, or and then on the on the you at your best question, uh, you know people's head comes up, their eyes open up, their arms and hands go away from their body. Sometimes they stand up, move around if they're, if they're actually doing a moving version of it. But the metaphor of I want my hands to be free, I want my eyes to be open. Mm. 
be able to interact with you, putting your hands away from your body, see so that less dependent, more open. Well, so once you have that, you can do that in a couple of minutes. At the yeah. beginning of first session, mm -hmm. people will play with you. You can then use that a metaphor. You know, right now in this right in this moment in session, or when you were facing that, were you? And then just show we're in this posture, we're in that posture. Yeah. And you didn't even know all of what it means, mm -hmm. but the client knows what it means. So that'd be my single favorite one, instead of going back to your physical body as a metaphor, so kind of embodied cognition, I suppose, yeah. is yeah. what I would say in a modern way. Great. Well, thank you so much for your willingness to spend this time with me. I hope that uh, listeners to this uh, will find your thoughts illuminating. Thanks for the time to chat with you. Thank you.